0: following contains situations and circumstances that are relatable to all women, but are still uncomfortable and sometimes quite awful. We don't pull any punches. Listener discretion is advised. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change the ship another way feel it in the darkness We're sailing right into those jagged cliffs yeah some say we've always been insane hey life's a foolish game life's a foolish game Sometimes sisters can make the most bitter rivals, especially when you're judged by the other's reputation. Welcome to Frenemies, a Toil and Trouble Media original. On this show, we discuss famous women and the feuds that help define them. This week, sisters fight for image, position, and power. It's the story of Anne and Mary Boleyn. It's very difficult to come up with concrete facts about these women and the times in which they lived. So much of the tale is drawn from scholarly opinions and speculation. We do know that Mary and Anne were born to a moderately influential family. Their father was an earl, their mother described as a woman of equal pedigree. With their father identified by his prestigious title and their mother, described more like a greyhound, it's clear the girls were immersed in the limits of their gender from the very beginning. Poor kids. Because of the lack of parish records, we can't be entirely sure of the girls' birth dates or even their birth order. That's not uncommon for those days. Families had a hard enough time dodging illness, warding off poverty, and just keeping track of their kids, much less organizing them. Either way, most scholars believe that Mary was older and Anne was somewhere between one and seven years behind, so we'll go with that. Very little is known about the girls' childhoods, except presumably they had one. It's generally accepted that they were educated and educated well. At that time in history, it was commonly believed that women possessed inferior brains, incapable of handling rigorous academics. According to the learned powers of the day, all women needed was enough education to prepare them for marriage. Girls would be schooled in dancing, embroidery, and etiquette, as well as reading and writing, English, and even a little French. You know, enough literacy so they could read more about dancing, embroidery, and etiquette. Thomas Boleyn reportedly took extra measures to also school his daughters in more aristocratic interests, like archery, falconry, riding, and hunting. While the move might have been seen as progressive or even humanistic, it could also be chalked up to a man interested in seeing his daughters married up as advantageously as possible. And you can't fault him for wanting his girls to get ahead. Presumably, the wealthier the match, the better lifestyle would go along with it. Not only for them, but for him as well. So it's also likely the girls were educated in these extracurricular activities to an elevated standard. Most scholars agree both girls were very pretty, especially for a time when poor hygiene and a limited gene pool made this a challenge. Mary, said to be the prettier of the pair, was described as pleasant and outgoing, a real people person. Anne was intelligent and cautious with her eye on the prize. She'll get no judgments here. Either way, Mary was a fun one and the proper one. One can almost imagine the girls squabbling over the proper way to, I don't know, dance or embroider. In 1513, Daddy Boleyn's efforts landed Anne a place at the court of Margaret of Austria, who was stationed in France, and the girls parted ways. There, she could further her education, network, and learn the skills she would need to secure a position as one of Queen Catherine of Aragon's ladies-in-waiting, kind of like an internship, only for teenagers. The overshadowing doesn't appear to have bothered Mary. History doesn't record mention of a separation troubling either of them. But what do you do? Some sisters just aren't that close. After Anne left for court, scholars speculate that Mary used her time creatively embarking on affairs with men of increasing importance. With a future of dancing, embroidery, and etiquette ahead of her, she probably wanted to get the best offer she could. And, you know, to that I say, you go, girl. The sisters reunited a year later when they were called to accompany Mary Tudor, sister of King Henry VIII, to France for her marriage to King Louis XII. The sisters undoubtedly caught up in all the excitement and juicy gossip while bonding over their new assignments. Well, maybe not. As Anne attended to the new French queen, Mary made herself useful in other ways. Rumors circulated in court that the elder Boleyn preferred to serve as the king. It was said that Francis found her company most stimulating and her visits to his chambers would extend far into the night. She must have been amazing at dancing, embroidery, and etiquette. Although most historians believe the reports of their sexual affairs are exaggerated, I mean, aren't they always The French king did refer to her as the English mayor, my Hackney, and, I quote, a very great whore, the most infamous of all, during his chats with the Catholic bishop, Rodolfo Pyle. I can only guess that Louis meant to use the news as a way to possibly get out of saying so many rosaries, having already given praise to the Lord many times the night before. And, you know, you own that Hail Mary, honey. Scholars speculate that Louis quickly tired of Mary. The day after Louis and Mary Tudor's marriage, the King of France dismissed most of his wife's English attendants, believing his queen should be immersed in French maids. And, you know, no matter how I repeat that, it still doesn't sound right. I hope he explained it better. He wouldn't have much time, though. Just a couple months later, King Louis would come down with gout, and by January he was dead, succeeded by Francis I, and the Tudor party was recalled to England. Henry wasted no time in arranging another marriage for his poor sister, and Mary Tudor was promptly handed off to the Duke of Suffolk. With no particular reason to stay, the sisters soon followed. Back in Britain, the girls went their separate ways. Anne took a cushy position at King Catherine's posse, Mary looked for other opportunities. She told Henry she, too, desired his attention and when it came to romance, and it appears that Henry obliged. In February of 1520, she was married to William Carey, a member of the king's privy chamber. He even attended their wedding as a guest. Of course, this was after he took her as one of his many mistresses, but when you're the king, why not? Scholars agree Mary excelled at the role, There were even rumors that she bore him two children, although Henry didn't acknowledge either of them. It should be noted, however, that Henry had previously acknowledged Henry Fitzroy, a son by another mistress, Elizabeth Blount. So it goes to figure the rumors were exaggerated, or the fact that Mary gave birth to yet another girl had something to do with the disconnect. There was only so much royal dancing, embroidery, and etiquette to go around, I guess. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that he wasn't a charmer. Years into their illicit relationship at the Shrovetide Joust, Henry wore a Latin motto that meant, she has wounded my heart. Many at the time attributed that as a shout out to Mary. So this lends credit, if not to their relationship, at least to her reputation. And with so few options for women to get ahead, Mary could have done worse. The affair was a triumph for the whole Boleyn team. Due to her talents, her husband began receiving generous gifts and grants. Her father rose in the power promoting to treasurer of the household and knight of the garter, which under Randy Henry's management was way less fun than it sounded, but it probably paid pretty well. As a royal mistress, she and her family would have been offered more opulent accommodations, she would have been showered with dresses and riches on the taxpayer's dime. She and her family would have also had the benefit of extra favor from the king. Not bad for paying a little extra attention to the king's royal jewels. Particularly talented mistress could see life-changing compensation in the form of properties, pensions, and even titles. This is certainly something that Mary and the rest of the Boleyn clan were well aware of. So it would seem Sir Thomas positioned his girls to succeed on both sides of the political spectrum. You know, in case dancing, embroidery, and etiquette didn't pan out. When she became pregnant with the king's second child, Mary had a problem. Henry wasn't one to find the glow of motherhood a turn on. There was nothing hot about morning sickness or swollen ankles. As Mary mutated from fun, frolicky bed buddy to a slow, sickly shut-in, too tired to get her freak on with the enthusiasm he craved, Henry grew bored. Mary watched with concern as the king's eyes started wandering to other female members of his court. Members who were thinner, less pregnant, and all too willing to take her place. Her employment package didn't exactly come with maternity leave. If Henry left for greener, non-pregnant pastures, she would not only lose her livelihood and her cushy standard of living, but her families would soon follow. Eager to avoid this, she turned to her sister. While the girls moved in different circles, Mary was quite aware of her sister's popularity and almost as fetching good looks. As one of the queen's maids of honor, Anna had done well for herself, becoming one of the most admired ladies in court. She had a stellar reputation, no transmittable diseases or unsightly skeletons in her closet to speak of, and she'd already attracted the attention of many men. Among them, Henry Percy, the sixth Earl of Northumberland. As an added endorsement, there were even murmurs that Percy intended to propose. I'm not sure how significant this really was. Percy doesn't go down in history for Doing anything, so it doesn't sound like his drive stretched much past himself. And while this might have been fine for him, it's clear Anne had loftier ambitions. So I can't help but wonder when all the gossip started taking hold about this Anne and Percy hookup if she wasn't already thinking she could do better. And girl, that is totally fair. For Mary, Anne was ideal. Best case scenario, Anne could hold her place in Henry's bed until she was able to recover from that whole pregnancy thing. When Mary would be able to resume her position, at worst, should Henry decide to keep the younger Bolin, it wasn't likely to cost them anything. Mary's financial security would remain intact. Surely Anne would advocate for her. So one evening, she planted a bug in Henry's ear. It didn't take much. She probably had her tongue in it anyway, and let's be honest, all she really had to do was get him to look in Anne's direction and let his penis do the rest. Henry took note of Anne's features, availability, and age. Noted her proximity, her discretion, and surely her dancing, embroidery, and etiquette, because obviously it would be dumb to deny a woman a decent education if those things weren't so vitally important. He watched her. And he liked what he saw. The fact that Anne had other admirers made her even more desirable. When Henry caught wind of Lord Percy's desired marriage, he forbid it. And how could he not? He was in love or lust. With Henry, it didn't really matter. With Percy sent on his way, Henry began his tried and true method to gain invite into Anne's pants, sending her gifts and love letters. For the record, He was a talented texter. In one of his letters to Anne, he wrote, If you give yourself up heart, body, and soul to me, I will take you for my only mistress, rejecting from thought and affection all others save yourself, to serve only you. Smooth, right? Then he sat back and waited for her to swoon into his bed. But instead, Anne refused him. He was shocked. No one had ever done that before. Your wife, I cannot be, Anne replied, both in respect of mine own unworthiness and also because you have a queen already. Your mistress, I will not be. You see, our girl Anne had learned a thing or two. She was no fool, and she damn sure wasn't another hoe to be used and discarded. She didn't want a reputation like Mary's. She wasn't another royal mattress back doomed to bear heirs with no real claim to the throne. Anne wanted a throne. She wanted to be queen. And she would keep Henry at bay until he put out first. Not one to take refusal, Henry kept up the love bombing, sending more gifts, more jewels, and more love letters. He lost sleep, lying in bed alone, undoubtedly fantasizing about her say it with me, dancing, embroidery, and etiquette. In return, Anne kept her knees locked tightly together. She meant what she said. The only way he was going to get past second base was if he dropped the queen and married her. Her ploy worked. By 1526, the royal blue balls had Henry frenzied and scrambling for a way to kick Catherine to the curb. To be fair, he hadn't exactly been on board with Catherine anyway. She was originally his brother Arthur's wife, married mere months before he died. Henry had inherited her like he did the crown. It was not exactly the kind of hand-me-down the 15-year-old was thrilled with. She was much older, but he did sleep with her from time to time. Even then, things had been unsuccessful. You see, besides being old and... Spanish, to Henry, Catherine had other flaws. She'd failed to give him a son. As the last tutor with a Y chromosome, Henry was obsessed with this life goal. Continuing this line of succession was vitally important, at least as important as dancing, embroidery, and etiquette. How Catherine had missed that was a complete mystery to him. He insisted she only did a half-assed job with the couple's only surviving child. The girl Princess Mary wouldn't do. How could she be king? Anne couldn't agree more and stoked his frustrations. She suggested Catherine was lazy, uninterested, and passed it. She didn't really love Henry. Catherine certainly didn't deserve him. But if he left her and married Anne she'd be more than appreciative. She would give him a son. She promised it. The more Anne teased, the more firmly he was convinced. Catherine was incompetent. The chick had to go. But that was easier said than done. The queen, although Spanish by birth, was more of a fixture in the kingdom than he was. Catherine was regal, pious and very popular with the people. Still a Catholic country, Catherine suited England, the populace, and the church just fine. She also had political connections of her own. She had the backing of both the Vatican and Spain. Henry knew he would have a hard time forcing her into retirement, doomed to a cold convent away from not only the trappings of royalty, but the prestige as well. Catherine was a proud woman. She wouldn't give in easily. As a good Catholic himself, Henry first tried to appeal to the church, begging for an annulment. He married young. He didn't know what he was doing. But the church rejected him. He made his bed, and he would better learn to lie in it. Henry wasn't happy with the verdict. Perhaps they didn't understand. He wasn't just any Congregationalist. He was king. He sent word back to the Vatican with slightly stronger language and was rejected in much the same manner. So he tried being clever. He insisted the church had to find the marriage invalid on the grounds that it was incestuous. He argued that her marriage to Arthur had created a familiar relationship between Henry and Catherine long before the marriage. As his dead brother's wife, she was really his sister. An incest is a sin, right? With a completely straight face, Henry argued his marriage to her couldn't possibly be considered a real marriage and waited on them to agree. They didn't. The church replied with something to the effect of, sorry, Henry, no dice. Catherine was too useful in her royal position to throw into a convent just for kicks. Henry popped his cork. Anne continued to pressure and the empty lectures of a bunch of supposedly abstinent bishops just got on his nerves. He grew tired of everyone telling him what he could do with his royal staff. So Henry broke with the Catholic Church, banned Catherine anyway, married Anne, formed the Church of England, and initiated the Reformation for good measure. And to think, some men complain about just having to take a cold shower. Peasants. Speaking of peasants, His didn't exactly celebrate the news. They loved Catherine and thought she got the shaft. But they couldn't hold Henry responsible. After all, he was a powerful man, capable of adding any of them to the executioner's itinerary. But they could blame Anne. And did. Anything, everything became Anne's fault. The additional economic pressure brought by diplomatic strains? Blame Anne. Unprecedented religious persecution? Blame Anne. Increased taxes. Increased global tensions. They blamed Anne for these, too. Commoners quietly grumbled that she was a harlot, a witch, and a whore. Not that there wasn't any evidence of any of these allegations at all, but that hardly mattered. Anne worked hard on building her public image with these people. She was a strong proponent of social programs and assistance for the poor. She believed in the value of literacy and education. She was a champion for the advancement of women. So long as her advancement and her daughter, Princess Elizabeth's came before Catherine and Mary's, let's not get all crazy now. Still, none of that mattered. Anne was no Catherine, and the people hated her for it. But while the Tudor power couple continued uprooting the religious freedom and property of their subjects, Mary suffered another blow. Her husband, William, came down with sweating sickness, a flu-like condition, and died. His death left her with two children to provide for and no income to do it. She was forced to write her king-in-law for help. Henry obliged, coaxing out a bailout from Sir Thomas. But the assistance came at a price. Along with the payment, Henry gave wardship, a kind of conservatorship of Mary's son, to Anne. Wardship was a standard practice in Tudor times and came with perks. It meant that Anne would be financially responsible for the boy. On the surface, the decision would appear enormously helpful to Mary, but Mary knew a screw job when she saw one. In spite of her close relationship with both of them, not to mention her responsibility for them being together in the first place, Henry and Anne saw Mary as a liability, an embarrassment. Mary was single, with a reputation of having an easy virtue. One slip of her tongue and the royal couple would be ridiculed. That simply wouldn't do. Henry and Anne wanted her quiet and out of the way. The crisis was just the excuse they needed to make it happen. Wardship left her son Henry under Anne's control. Her little sister would be responsible for his education, career placements, essentially his entire future. She could even remove him from her home on a whim, and there would be nothing Mary could do about it. Anne attempted to play nice by arranging for her nephew to be educated at a respectable Cistercian monastery and securing Mary an annual pension of about 100 pounds, about 32,000 pounds today. But a kiss-off is still a kiss-off. They paid the hush money, assumed control of her life, and resumed her position as one of Anne's ladies-in-waiting. She attended her sister's coronation firmly under her boot, but she wouldn't stay like that for long. In September of 1534, a noticeably pregnant Mary returned to court. It was far from a welcome reunion. Sure, they put a belt on the elder Boleyn's chastity. The couple had been working on more pressing matters of state, like stirring religious divisions and producing that essential male heir. Anne lost her shit. She was horrified. Mary couldn't have made her look worse if she tried. Not only was she knocked up again with another baby, Anne was sure she couldn't afford to take care of. Mary announced to God and everyone she had secretly married. And worse, for love. The groom, William Stafford, was a soldier in the Calais garrison and was one of Henry's gentleman ushers. Let me repeat that. A soldier and an usher. How could she do that? Anne didn't know what pissed her off more. The fact that her sister eloped without asking her or the fact that it was to a man of such low rank. An usher. It was like Mary cozied up to the first guy she met at a trailer park and was now throwing it in Anne's face. What would the rest of court think? her subjects, her husband, outraged and screamed at her and accused her of disgracing the family and the king. She banished her sister from court and stripped her of her pension, leaving Mary strapped for cash once again. Now, like many sisterly squabbles, that might not have been the whole story. Some historians believe the real reason Anne disowned Mary was that she had rekindled her affair with Henry. Why else would she go around flaunting herself in court? She had made a pretty decent living as the king's mistress before, and there was nothing stopping her from reapplying for the position. And Stafford certainly couldn't afford that kind of a lifestyle. Some aren't so sure, but speculate that Mary's very reappearance was problematic in itself, with a pregnant sister waddling around and may have been worried about being cast aside. You know like Catherine. She did make a pretty strong case for it while Catherine was still around, and as Randy and as impulsive as Henry was, he had a long memory. Either way, it just made sense to tell Mary to hit the bricks. The two sisters never reconciled. They never saw each other again. Mary remained in presumed wedded bliss as her family fell from favor, Having never achieved any more in the baby-making department than wife number one, Henry eventually tired of his high-maintenance spouse and set about looking for her replacement. He soon settled on the sister's second cousin, Anne's current maid of honor, Jane Seymour. By now, his romantic routine had been adapted for the modern church. While he loved bombed Seymour with gifts and poetry, he set about petitioning the church for a divorce. He claimed that his prior affair with Mary invalidated his marriage to Anne. Because, you guessed it, she was already a sister. Her daughter, Princess Elizabeth, was promptly bastardized, much in the same manner that befell her half-sister, Princess Mary, and Anne, their brother George, and father were imprisoned in the Tower of London. Upon hearing the news, Mary may have reached out, but was turned away. Some scholars believe Mary requested an audience with the king to beg for their lives, but he refused her. Whatever their relationship was before, it was firmly in the past. Mary was never able to save her family. Anne was put on trial, charged with incest, witchcraft, adultery, and conspiracy against the king. On May 19th of 1536, after being convicted without defense, Anne was executed beheaded before a crowd of frenzied commoners and courtiers eager to put this awkwardness behind them. There's no historical record of Mary's reaction, but the news must certainly have been devastating. She'd never wanted that for her little sister. Was she relieved that she'd been banished from court? I'm sure she was. That distance might have saved her from the chopping block. Mary lived on in relative obscurity for another seven years, before dying of unknown causes on July 19, 1543. She was in her early 40s. By then, Henry had already lost wife number three, Jane Seymour, number four, Anne Cleves, number five, Catherine Howard, and had already put a ring on the much younger, but still precarious wife number six, Catherine Parr. History records nothing to suggest Mary had any regrets about the way things turned out for her. And if that's not being true to yourself, I don't know what is. This has been Frenemies. Thanks for listening. Frenemies is an original production of Toil and Trouble Media. Executive produced by Jennifer Beck. This episode was also written and performed by Jennifer Beck. I'm kind of a big deal. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Iris and David Beck. And our music was performed by Snowflake and Admiral Bob. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen and tell your friends. It helps us rise above the crap. And check out our website at toilandtroublemedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. We're also on Patreon, and we have a YouTube channel if you want even more Toil and Trouble media in your life. I lost control of those outlets a long time ago, so you never know what you're going to find. They're kind of like herding cats. And as always, thanks for listening.